It's five o'clock on Friday afternoon. My name's Jacob, here with you on Community Radio Station 3CR, and this is a Friday Rave. Yes, welcome to Friday Rave. As I say, my name's Jacob, Jacob Grech, and I'm here in lovely Smith Street in the studios of Community Radio 3CR. First time in the studios for a little while, and I'm only back, I reckon, for this week, maybe next week, see how it goes. Just having returned from a whistle-stop tour of a few towns in Victoria and New South Wales with a home run for Julian Roadshow. Yeah, I'm not fond of, the, fond of the name either. But be that as it may, the important thing is the issue, and that's garnering support for Julian Assange to be freed and allowed to return home to Australia. Now, on the road, I'm not going to talk about it too much, just as an intro. On the road, I was joining John Shipton, Julian's dad, Rain from Melbourne for WikiLeaks, and Graham Dunstan of the Peace Bus. Had a pretty amazing trip, folks. Pretty amazing trip. They ended up in Canberra on Monday, just gone. But if you, you know, if you haven't heard enough of it yet on the Friday rave, as I've been broadcasting from the road, and five o'clock Friday is a great time for rallies, then you can listen into a series of special broadcasts that James and Jackson have put together about the road trip, following us, um, coming out to see us at times, and doing others by the remarkable new technologies. Um, they've called our show simply "Home Run for Julian." And it's uh, 9.30am on Thursdays, and I think the first one was um, yesterday. So for the next few weeks, you're going to have interviews with myself and John and other people on the Home Run for Julian tour. And this coming Tuesday, I reckon, I'll be on Jan Bartlett's Tuesday Home Time talking about it at 4 o'clock. But, um, you know, you know how it is when you've been deep in a thing for a few weeks to the exclusion of everything else and you're preparing to do the same again in a month or so, I actually need a break. I don't want to talk about something else. But first, I just want to apologise or at least give an explanation for the fiasco this afternoon. I spoke on 3CR's Talk Back With Attitude show yesterday about the Break the Poverty Cycle Poverty Machine Rally at Tre- Treasury Place. It took place at lunchtime today. Now, I said I'd be there and bring in a solidarity sound system rig along. Well, I wasn't. And that has led to a couple of people so far hassling me for not arriving, for not being there. Well, what happened is that I arrived back in Melbourne specifically to do this yesterday, charged it all up at a mate's place last night, but this morning, as I was strapping it all together, I had a call from the organisers telling me I wouldn't be needed as a trades hall would bring in their sound truck. Okay, they've got more resources. You wish I'd known earlier. I would have stayed out bush, to be perfectly honest about it. But the hall has a bigger rig than we can afford, and a tractor uses a stage, and it's all about the cause, isn't it? Not about whether we got to use the sound system or not. So I um, so I sat it out. But the problem is that so did Trades Hall, apparently. And by the time that happened, and a mate called asking in panic, where are you? I'd already unstrapped a lot and stored the gear and was miles away from it on the other side of town. So, sorry. I'd hate folks to think that Renegade Solidarity Sound System, and I personally, had gone and done something totally unprecedented and let down a protest rally we said we'd be at. We've never done that, and we never will. So, apologies for um, not being there anyway, but there's little I could do about that one. But anyway, I want to talk about something else, and so... Looking around 
at all the just trying to see where the clock is here on this computer screen in front of me at 3CR oh there it is I'm looking around at all the um, stuff that's in my head this afternoon to talk about I came across the ASIO Director General's Threat Assessment Speech and he made that on Wednesday a couple of days ago Um, yeah the Director General of ASIO a bloke by the name of Mike Burgess now, first, before we go much further, let's just have a look at who this Mike Burgess is. Cue a sheet of paper. 14th Director General of Security. Um, three decades in intelligence, security and technology in both public and private sectors. Now, before joining OZIO, Mr Burgess, Mike, to his mates, was Director General of the Australian Signals Directorate, the ASD, what used to be known as the DSD. Now... Strangely enough, their motto, and this will be important when I talk about his threat assessment, I, I hope, because I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to say, but the agency's motto is reveal their secrets, protect our own. <laughs> you know, he, he's been at DSD. Well, he started at DSD in 95 and ended up um, being the Deputy Director for Cyber Information Security and the Deputy Chief of um, Pine Gap out there at Alice Springs. He then went on to become a Chief Information Security Officer at Telstra and um, worked for another company, S8, and um, then was given a tap on the shoulder um, to come back and run um, ASD. And then, obviously, from ASD, um, he left, and uh, what's her name? Rachel Noble. I might refer to her again, too. Um, took over there, and he came to ASIO. So that's who Mike Burgess is. Um, from the ASD to Pine Gap, commercial operations, a commercial protection racket, I could say, then back to the ASD. You can pretty much know what he's going to say, I reckon, before he says it, but I'm going to go through it anyway. Now, I've got it here, so I'm going to shuffle in between bits of paper here. But um, he starts off by welcoming to the Ben Chiefly building and all the rest of it, honoured by the attendance of friends, colleagues and partners. And then he says, our five eyes partners are also here, including this one and that one, and his new friend, um, Shingo Yamagami, from Japan, I guess, now that um, now that the quad seems to be um, taking a lot of our military and intelligence um, what's the word? Attention. Now, it's important that he said that our five eyes partners are here. Because that's, you know, traditionally, there's been a bit of a separation between ASIO, who look after domestic issues, and ASIS and the ASD. Now, having a former head of the ASD, and Pine Gap for that matter, as the internal spy chief, speaks a lot to the blurring of the lines between the agencies. And really, this is probably be expected um, with modern telecommunications and the way things are not so much local anymore. But still, increasingly, ASIO, along with ASIS, the um, Australian Security Intelligence Service, and um, ASD, the Australian Signals Directorate, and a host of others, are becoming intertwined as just branches of the Australian intelligence community, 
under the direction of the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, currently Margaret Stone. And I spoke of Margaret Stone a few weeks back when I was um, pointing out that she's the person who um, approved ASIO's um, before she was Director General of Intelligence. He had the job of um, going through ASIO's adverse assessment risks of refugees and is largely one of the one of the keys, one of the steps, one of the links that kept um, refugees locked up in um, detention centres and Mantra and the Park Hotel. Now, the fact that they're all acting as sort of branches of the Inspector General of Intelligence Security, IGIS, I-G-I-S, is important because Mike Burgess's threat assessment has to be seen not just in terms of ASIO, but of the whole intelligence community. Now, just to remind you, it's ASIO, there's ASIS and the ASD, there's the Defence Intelligence Organisation, um, the Australian Geospatial Intelligence Organisation, and, of course, the ONA, the Office of National Assessments. So let's just, you know, think of it in terms of a threat assessment from the, from the um, defence, the intelligence community. So going back to his speech, he starts off talking about how everybody's just ordinary visitors to BCB, I guess that means the Ben Chifley building, are often surprised by how normal our people look. The Hollywood versions of spies and spy catchers are a long way from reality. He goes on and on and on. It sounds like basically a, um, a recruitment ad for ASIO. Um, but after all that, he, after he you know, gets his straps, he gets down to the point. And the point is, um, where am I? Let me do, do, do. The threats continue about COVID, about how everything went pear-shaped. For those intent on violence, more time at home online meant more time in the echo chamber of the internet on the pathway to radicalisation. They were able to access hate-filled manifestos. Jeez, I thought Murdoch put up a paywall. But anyway, I don't think he means them. And attack institutions without some of the usual circuit breakers that contact with communities provides. Extreme right-wing propaganda... And that's where I want to stop for a moment. He talks about extreme right-wing propaganda. Let me just see. I'll skip a, 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 through some of his rave here about adapting and all the rest of it. I'm just going to, not going to skip this bit. He's saying, so what is Australia's security outlook? The environment is complex, challenging and changing. The terrorist threat remains at, and this is capitalised, the only capitalised word in the whole speech or his transcript anyway so I can only imagine how he shouted it the terrorist threat remains at probable not possible probable we have credible intelligence that individuals and groups have the capability and intent to conduct terrorism onshore let me be clear this threat is significant and it's not going away he goes on to talk about ISIL but then he goes to the right wing Let's have a look. So-called right-wing extremism has been in ASIO's sites for many years, and last year I called out what we've been seeing. Since then, ideological extremism in, um, investigations have grown from around one-third of our priority counter-terrorism caseload to around 40%. So it's gone from around one-third to around 40%. So I say it's gone up six or seven points. This reflects a growing international trend. 
as well as the decision to dedicate more resources. People often think when we're talking um, right-wing extremism, we're talking about skinheads with swastika tattoos and jackboots roaming the back streets like extras from Romper Stomper, but it's no longer that obvious. Today's ideological extremist is more likely to be motivated by social or economic grievance than national socialism. More often than not, they are young, well-educated, articulate and middle-class, not easily identified. So I guess to go away from his speech for a minute, what he's saying is it could be you, could be one of your kids, could be your neighbour's kids, could be the people down the road. He's talking kids, he's saying the average age of these investigative subjects is 25 and he's particularly concerned by the number of 15 and 16-year-olds who are being radicalised. They are overwhelmingly male. Well, that doesn't surprise you, does it? That doesn't surprise you at all. But, you know... We've been talking about right-wing extremism for a while. There is right-wing extremism. It is growing in the community. There's no doubt about that. We've been saying that here on 3CR and other forums for years now. But there's a problem when Mike Burgess says it. Now, that's regardless of Mr Dutton and Peter Potato Skinhead, I guess you could call him Dutton, arguing the need to deal with the far left as well as the far right. He likes to be balanced, does our Pete. But the problem with Burgess saying it... Well, quite frankly, when you you know look at ASIO, ASIS, ASD, and you know think of him as ASD because, like other crime syndicates, once you're in ASD, you never really leave. All working for the Australian government through the IGIS, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they are a right-wing extremist organisation, and we've got them now using the rhetoric of examining right-wing extremist organisation. So you've got to ask, why has the rhetoric moved from the left to the right? It's a big question, and I haven't really got time and space to answer it here, but I think it's because of a change in public perception as to what the terms mean. You see, once upon a time it was a given, absolute given. It's accepted that ASIO monitored and infiltrated and foiled the dastardly schemes of people like the Wobblies and the Australian Communist Party and trade unions. The left was the boogeyman, no doubt about it. That's accepted, everybody knows that. That's gone now. And in part, I mean, it was going anyway, but in part, that's the beauty that the Trump presidency was for the establishment. As a figure of disdain, mockery and hatred, he shifted the focus of society's enmity. Given Trump as president albeit a lame duck one that really did bugger all that previous presidents did, and that's I include St. Barack in that. The system, the state, can now wrap itself in the cloak of the soft left, of liberalism, which has become to be newly defined, or I guess there's a new definition in the mainstream amongst the soft left, whatever, And that definition, as close as I can get it, is anything not Trump and not QAnon. So throughout the last presidency, the liberal left media made a profound shift from viewing intelligence agencies at, you know, most an enemy, but at least stumbling blocks and obfuscating access to the truth and the rest of it. They've they've shifted from that 
to now they're talking intelligence agencies as being the only thing holding us back from the excesses of people like Trump and QAnon. How many times have you heard lefty friends attack Trump? Oh, look, attack Julian Assange for that matter by saying the CIA said or the FBI proved it. It's incredible the way they attack, you know, lefties attack Trump quoting US intelligence and law enforcement organisations. Absolutely disgusting. Like, whose side are, uh, do they think they're on? This was intensified through the COVID pandemic. <coughs> Excuse me. It was a scramble amongst a Liberal commentariat um, to prove that they weren't a threat. We're not a threat. We're law-abiding, concerned people who have always been trying to do the best for society. It's not us you want to be looking at. It's Dorides. It's QAnon. It's all the rest of it. And... Um, and then, you know, they in, in doing that, in trying to position themselves as, as caring and the people who should be in control, they went along with just about all excessive laws brought in by COVID. I'm not talking about the hard left here before people start ringing me up. There's someone ringing me now and my pocket's vibrating. Um, I'm talking about the liberal left. And they came to see all the COVID laws and restrictions as governments working for our own Good. And anybody opposing all the extra provisions of the COVID laws as wanting to kill their bloody grandmothers. That was a huge shift. Think about that just for a moment. I've spoken about it before. Ad nauseum it feels sometimes. The way commentary and friends and organisations that would normally oppose something, like the COVID tracing app, were among the first to take it up with gusto. Now, I've spoken about it in terms of um, the securitisation of our society, fears of crime, cybercrime, terrorism, and, of course, with COVID, illness and death and losing family. All these fears, all these problems, and they are problems, They've been met, and, and yeah, people say crime has reduced. Um, crime isn't as big an issue as the right wing commentariat make it out to be. Well, neither is COVID, quite frankly, as the media, as it as it turns out. Whatever reasons for that, you believe are your reasons for that, but it just wasn't as big an issue as they thought it was going to be. All these issues, all these fears, all these threats have been met not with methods and policies which could reduce the risk of these threats but with surveillance and punitive measures against them. Every question in society is dealt with through the lens, through the spectrum of security. And the only arguments we have is not, can we do things differently, but how much is too much? And if it, is this even enough? I mean, even though it was met with, you know, this is how far we've got, even though it was met, I guess, with general disdain and mockery, the issue of sexual assault, which has been in the media, obviously, in the last few weeks, and consent was recently met with the idea of a consent app that would allow people to register their agreement before they screw, which is stupid on so many levels. Reminds me of Leonard Cohen saying, and, you know, there's going to be a meter on your bed that will disclose what everybody knows. 30-odd years ago. 
Anyway, the point I'm making is that everything now is being dealt with as a security and surveillance issue. And that security headspace has taken firm hold, not only in the state, but in those acting, or at least purporting to act, at least, against it, the liberal media, the people who, on our side, act as an interpreter and as a buffer and an exposure of state excesses. They don't anymore because they fundamentally believe in the need of a security state. The battle's been lost. All sides of the debate are seeking security issues. Anyway, back to Ambergis's speech and his reference to right-wing extremism. Um, let me think here. More like the average age. Investigations of... Where are we? He goes on to say that they're, um, they're more about... They're not being seduced by national socialism. Today's ideological extremists are more likely to be motivated by social or economic grievance than national socialism. Okay, so what he's saying, what he's saying there is... Um, how, can, how, how can I put it? Um, they've got reasons. There are reasons they're seeking extremism. But anyway, he goes on. I'll, I'll get back to that. I've also got another note here in pink. I've got that many different colours written all across the pages of uh, Mike Burgess's speech. I don't know. I don't know which one I should read first. I mean, he refers to Christchurch, of course, as an example of right-wing extremism, and it was horrible, no doubt about it. But that was a crime, as were the other foil plans he alluded to. Um, he also goes on to talk about changing words. Um, from things like Islamic extremism to religiously motivated extremism. Um, and I'm not even going to... Will I Will I go through bothering to find the thing here? As an example, when thinking about proliferation of violent groups that subscribe to various political ideologies, it's unhelpful to characterise such groups as simply extreme left-wing or extreme this or extreme that. And um, goes on to say about Islam... It's not always clear when we use the term Islamic terrorism. Some Muslim groups and others see this as damaging misrepresentation. Our language needs to evolve to match the evolving threat environment. Yeah, our language needs to evolve to match the threat environment. But these change of words are just what changes of words always have been. Not so much an admission at the words accurately describe a situation that society moved away from and deems unacceptable, but an attempt to hide and obfuscate. And the obfuscation in light of the societal shift towards securitisation has worked. Now, I reckon I'm probably out of line with current thinking in a broader left community that has come under the sway of this doublespeak, even though that think this is a change of words is a positive shift in policy in part brought about by their lobbying efforts. How many times you've heard activists calling for intelligence agencies to shift from left to right? But to my mind, replacing the public perception of a communist threat with a fascist threat is meaningless. The point is that the intelligence community is being given more and more intrusive powers and they don't care whether they're looking at left or right. They don't care which side of the fence you're on they will use their powers to look at you they can't know which side of the fence you're on 
until they look at you, until they investigate you. Whether they claim the, you know, the power is designed to stop reds under the beds or, um, as Burgess puts it, skinhead um, swastika tattooed hooligans, um, doesn't matter. So we talked about how the new right-wing extremism is young, articulate, educated, and that they're motivated not by national socialism but by socio-economic grievances. And in that, he's hit the nail on the head. It's not that more young people are being seduced by the fash. It's that they are getting increasingly pissed off with the bare facts of their bare life. And they cannot afford rent. They cannot afford education. They have little prospect of a lifelong career. They're surveilled. They're tabulated, inspected, regulated, sedated at every corner. And now that they're the threat. Of course they're going to be seduced by dickheads telling them it's all the fault of refugees or one world government or the international Zionist conspiracy, for God's sake. Now, if this is true and young people are being radicalised through social and economic grievances, surely the way to counter the rise in this threat is to address their bloody grievances, give them a living wage, give them access to health, give them access to education, to due process under law, put an end to the situation that young people see every day where they are told that they are the problem and the government can't afford to treat them with dignity or even meet their barest essentials while watching their elected leaders continue to lie, bullshit, commit fraud, rape, speak with misogyny, racism and every other thing that Mike Burgess reckons is driving them into the arms of fascists. Our leaders do these things with absolute bloody impunity. Of course young people are going to be pissed off. Recognising that the threat comes from social and economic inequity and doing nothing about that inequity, rather waiting for the inevitable, creating the inevitable and bringing out the stick is like leaving a... <coughs> I don't know, a, a first aid kit in a car with no brakes and then blaming the driver. But on the other hand, if I were to be just a tad conspiratorial, maybe this is what they want. The security state, like any sector in a society, in a society that lives by a mantra of unsustained growth, naturally wants to grow and develop power. It's not a conspiracy by nasty men, it's just a natural course of capitalism. The surveillance state feeds itself, it needs to find stuff to justify its existence. When it does, it hands over the security state and on it goes to the military corporate state, fascism, which is this is inexorably leading to. So back to the speech just in the last minute. I've got Mike Burgess talks of foreign influence, by which he means China, what has become known in intelligence circles as the other C word, the one you can't use. Now... On that, I want to go back to Rachel Noble's speech where she admitted that infiltration is exactly the kind of things they do. She said in her speech, I know what they do because we do it too. And she said it's a, it's a battle and that she wants to see China, sorry, she wants to see our enemy. She doesn't use C words. She's much too cultivated. She wants to see our enemies as their worst nightmare. 
We want them to think we are their worst nightmare. Why the hell would any government concerned with foreign interference want the largest nation on earth, with the best equipped nation on earth, a nation that can build two COVID 1,000 bed hospitals in the same time it takes us to organise a press conference about an app that doesn't work, who happens to be our biggest trading partner, why in the world would you want that country to view us as their worst nightmare? Because, my friends, that's what makes the richest people richer and those with the most powerful even more power, more powerful. It's nothing to do with threats. And, in fact, they don't care about you or I. They don't care who's in charge. If their worst nightmare or their worst-case scenario happened and the Chinese took over, they'd be the ones selling us out to to their new masters. It's just got to do with making a quid. That's the threat-level assessment, and um, they'll do anything they can to justify their use of force in the exploitation of the planet, the country and its people. My name's Ben Jacob. This has been a Friday Rave. I'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.